This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Large format landscape photos, illuminating ISS, Leica Q series, and more. Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 345 for Sunday, May 28th, 2023. And as usual, I'm covering the latest news stories from Petapixel that caught my eye for this past week. First up, the alluring beauty of Ben Horn's large-format film landscape photos. Prominent large-format wilderness photographer Ben Horn has enchanted viewers with incredible landscapes and nature photography, primarily of the American West, for over a decade. On his YouTube channel, Horn offers viewers an in-depth look as he journeys out into the field with his large-format gear, scouts locations, and captures photos. Horn also does film reveal videos, which pair nicely with his infield videos, as he surely can't develop his large format film photos out in the wilds of the American West. Petapixel chatted with Horn to discuss his photographic journey, his short-lived foray into digital cameras, and how working with large format analog technology has enriched his artistic experience. Horn uh, born and raised in San Diego, California, Ben Horn has long put his experience in the American West to photo paper. Growing up in the 80s, Horn used a point-and-shoot film camera. As a high school student, he took a photography class and became serious about photography as a hobby and art form. Quote, we worked with 35-millimeter film, developed it ourselves, and made prints in the darkroom, Horn tells Petapixel. This was in 1998, so digital photography was in its nascent stages as a commercial product for professionals and, to a lesser extent, typical consumers. Horn says his first digital camera was only 0.3 megapixels and recorded photos on floppy disks. While new cameras these days are, uh, usually offer only in iterative improvements over their predecessors, back in the 90s and early 2000s, every new camera was a significant innovation. Ground groundbreaking technologies arrived in a fast and furious fashion. At this point, Horn was all in on digital photography gear. Quote, I rode that early wave of innovation with a variety of cameras, including Canon's first digital SLR, the D30. From there, I went on to own a variety of pro-grade Canon cameras, including the 1D, 1D Mark II, 1DS Mark III, and the 5D, and was well-versed with digital. However, Horn felt the process to be wildly unfulfilling. Quote, if I were to take a photo I was very proud of, that sense of satisfaction would fade with the announcement of a new camera. Would a once-in-a-lifetime photo captured on a 3-megapixel camera stand the test of time? I was caught in the endless cycle of upgrades, all while chasing a sense of perfection that, quite frankly, doesn't exist, Horn laments. In 2008, one of Horn's friends suggested that because of his interest in landscape photography, he should try a 4x5 film camera. 
Quote, I purchased a used Toyo 45 All 4x5 camera and took that along with my 1DS3 on my first solo landscape photography trip. And the rest is history, he explains. I love the process of working with a mature technology. It gave my work a sense of permanence I didn't experience with digital. A photo captured on a 4x5 today will be the same as an image captured on a 4x5 film 10 years ago as well as 10 years from now. Also, large format teaches you to embrace the imperfection of the craft, resulting in a greater sense of satisfaction. Not long after that trip, I sold my entire digital kit, Horn says. For the past 15 years, Horn has been a large format film photographer, and it's helped propel him along an incredible artistic journey full of beautiful photos and a rich collection of videos documenting Horn's photography adventures. After starting with a 4x5, he purchased an 8x10 camera shortly after that. I first bought a 4x5 to see how I liked working with large format, and it was love at first sight. After getting my toes wet with 4x5, I purchased an 8x10 a short time later, which I had secretly admired since learning about the large format. Truth be told, I could have stopped with 4x5 and would have been fine. But there was something about the lure of working with an 8x10. The process of working with both formats is about the same, but the depth of field is narrower on 8x10. The film is four times the cost and the cameras are bigger and heavier, Horn says. Horn's YouTube channel is where many people have discovered his outstanding work. It has enabled a new generation of photographers to learn about analog photography in the digital age, and it's an interesting juxtaposition to watch the creation of analog photos on a digital platform. Quote, that's really cool that you were introduced to large format through my channel. In many ways, my channel uh, flies under the radar. My goal is to simply show what I'm doing and explain why, but not to tell people how they should go about their photography, Horn says. Horn put effort into his YouTube channel, although he doesn't want it to become work, which is one reason he doesn't show ads on his channel and never resorts to clickbait. Despite the incredible quality of his work, his subscriber count trails some other photographers who make similar content, albeit only sometimes with Horn's analog flavor. Perhaps because Horn shoots in a in a format very few photographers use, it limits his reach. However, that doesn't bother him. Quote, channels depending primarily on ad revenue are rewarded by the number of views their videos receive, which is why so many channels become so formulaic with the strange facial expressions and thumbnails, odd numbers of tips and tricks and sensationalized titles with strange and use of capitalization for emphasis, he explains. For me, that would make photography into work, which I have no desire for. By shutting off the ads and not playing the clickbait game, I can focus on producing videos that are more personally meaningful. I found through the years that this also attracts a higher quality audience, an audience that's incredibly supportive. I went with the viewer-supported content route back in 2010 via PayPal and then more recently with Patreon, which allows me to do what I love and for photography not to become work, he continues. Perhaps it's unsurprising that photography or photographers like Horn, who pour so much into every single frame, would be of a quality over quantity mindset. While this means he isn't getting huge subscribers and viewer counts, he has a built-in tight-knit supportive community that's more, much more important to him. 
He's also inspired others, which is a fantastic achievement for any photographer, no matter the gear they use. I know quite a few people who have tried large format after watching my videos through the years, most of which still use it today. There's something so very satisfying about the process of working with mature technology, and I'm glad it's something other people are able to experience as well, Horn comments. Petapixel asked Horn about the potential for offering workshops, but he says he has no plans for that. He enjoys the solitude of his photographic process and is worried that introducing clients into that would be anxiety-inducing anxiety and make photography feel more like work. Who knows what the future holds, though, he adds. Petapixel asked Horn how he handles video content creation in the field given his primary purpose is making great photos. Photography always comes first. In most cases, I arrive well ahead of the light and have time to record the footage I need in relaxed fashion. But if I'm driving along and see a rapidly changing scene I'd like to photograph, the video kit stays in my truck. There are always creative ways of making a video work after the fact with voiceovers and such, Horn explains. He used to try film enough videos to create new video for each day of a photo trip. However, he has since moved away from this approach as it puts a lot of pressure on him to record constantly. Now I just record whatever feels necessary and worry about it after the fact. Combining several days into a single video is fine with me, just so long as the video flows well enough and carries the story, he says. That said, YouTube, while not always Horn's priority, has enabled him to earn a living doing what he loves. As far as I'm aware, I was the first landscape photographer on YouTube. Back then, vlogging wasn't a thing. I greatly despise that word, by the way. It makes me die a little bit inside every time I say it. I've always said video journal because it feels less sensationalized and, and attention-seeking and far more genuine, remarks Horn. As for the cool factor of film photography, Horn doesn't care. Back in 2009, shooting film wasn't cool, and I'm sure many would argue that it still isn't cool, of which I would probably agree. But I've been doing uncool things all my life. Case in point, I'm an avid inline skater, and I've been skating for over 25 years now. Part of what makes Horn's photograph, uh, photography and video journals so appealing to his biggest supporters is that everything feels authentic which is increasingly rare these days, especially on social media. I've always seen myself as the tortoise in the tortoise in the hare, albeit a tortoise on speed skates, but that's beside the point. By remaining true to myself, none of this feels like work, Horn says. It's what I would do anyway, and that's a recipe for long-term growth and hopefully long-term success. Will my channel ever reach 100,000 subscribers? Probably not, but that's fine with me. I'm here doing what I love, and it's so amazing that other people enjoy it as well. While any photographic process includes some limitations, even when working with the latest and greatest digital cameras, autofocus can be only so fast, the resolution only so high, and the dynamic range only so expansive. Lenses are, of course, the cause of many limitations concerning composition and the overall look of an image. Analog photography is no different in that it also includes challenges a photographer must overcome or work around, although the limitations differ from digital photography. Large format is limiting indeed, but that's also why it's so incredibly rewarding. It's human nature to have greater respect for things we work the hardest for, Horn says. 
It takes time to set up a large format camera, meter the scene, and expose the sheet of film, so reactionary photos aren't often worth pursuing. Large format is better suited for contemplative photography where you identify a subject, craft a composition, and then wait for the light. This process reinforces a sense of calm when the light arrives, allowing me to absorb my surroundings and enjoy the moment rather than second-guessing my every decision. This results in a greater sense of satisfaction with my own work, with few, if any, regrets about the subject or the composition after the fact, he continues. He explains the other limitations include setting up the camera before sunrise, you can't see anything on the ground, glass, and taking photos in the wind. Horn's go-to aperture is f45, so it's easy to see how extremely long exposures and narrow aperture in the elements can be especially tricky. Even at f45, the depth of field remains narrow, further complicating the photographic process, especially for landscape photography. He also notes that dynamic range is limited when working with transparency film, a topic that will come up again shortly. It sounds like a lot, but each of these limitations forces me to work harder while giving my work a sense of direction, Horn says. Longtime viewers of Horn's video journals will know the topic of reflected light comes up quite frequently. Imagine being deep in a canyon where the sun is illuminating one sandstone wall with the light from the sunlit wall reflecting into the shadows of the opposing canyon wall. Not only is the light soft and warm, but it's comprised of two colors, warm light from the wall and blue light from the sky above. With two colors of lighting coming from different directions, any subject you photograph will have an added depth and dimension, Horn says. Not only is reflected light beautiful, it's also easier for transparency film to handle. When working with transparency film, the dynamic range is just over four stops, significantly less than today's digital cameras. By comparison, black and white film and color negative film have a dynamic range that's often greater than digital, Horn explains. He wonders how photographers would react if a digital camera were released with just four stops of dynamic range. Although this is certainly a limitation when working in harsh sunlight, there are types of light that actually look better when photographed with lesser dynamic range, and reflected light is one such light, Horn adds. Transparency film loves this sort of light, Horn says, explaining that transparency film captures the blue from the sky more than digital, which gives subjects more dimensionality. With the limited dynamic range, a scene with relatively low contrast can appear to have stronger contrast. If one were to photograph the same scene on digital, it might feel a bit muddy because of the massive dynamic range, especially when combined with how digital minimizes the impact of blue light reflected from the sky above, Horn says. With transparency film, both the shadows and the highlights are incredibly important. It's a bit like taking a photo with a digital camera in JPEG mode where you can't recover the shadows or save the highlights, Horn says, of the challenging the challenge of working with transparency film and achieving optimal exposure. What's there is there. That being said, the highlights on transparency film are more forgiving than the shadows, which hold no detail whatsoever. And compared to digital, the highlights of transparency film will at least gracefully hold some pastel colors rather than falling off a cliff. Horn begins dialing in his exposure settings by metering a gray card using a Siconic light meter in its spot metering mode. 
This often gives him a good starting place. He then sets the light meter to average mode and considers how bright and dark the subjects in the scene are. If I like what I see, I use that setting. Otherwise, I meter the brightest and darkest areas I hope to hold detail in, average them, then evaluate the brightness of each subject, Horn explains. Learning to use a light meter represents the most significant learning curve of working with film, something that's taken for granted when working with a modern digital camera, where what you see is what you get. Of course, if a photographer botches an exposure on a digital camera, they know immediately and can adjust the settings accordingly. Horn has no way of knowing precisely what his photo will look like, although with his extensive experience, visualizing the results must help. His favorite film, Fuji Provia 100F, is a highly versatile transparency film. It has relatively low contrast and low saturation, which makes it quite forgiving. Some film stocks require additional exposure time for long exposures because of something called reciprocity failure. For example, a 30-second exposure at Velvia 50 requires 60 seconds of light to give an accurate exposure. Provia is a rock star in this sense. It doesn't require any correction until exposure times are measured well into the minutes. This is especially useful when doing exposures after dusk when the light levels are rapidly dropping. Unfortunately, during Horn's time shooting film, the availability of particular film stocks has dwindled. Probia 100F is currently unavailable, for example, although Horn hopes that's a temporary problem. I have a stockpile of Probia 100F in my freezer, he adds. However, there remains a constant threat that color transparency film in general may one day be unavailable altogether. If color transparency film were to disappear as a whole, I'm not sure what I would do. I love the process of working with film, he says. There's a beauty in working with a mature technology and knowing that the image I produce today is the same quality as an image produced 10 years ago and 10 years from now. While that permanence in quality is an appealing aspect of film photography and gives the medium a tireless element, Horn is at the mercy of film manufacturers. Large format photography delivers impeccable image quality and sharpness. For me, the greatest advantage of large format, even greater than the impressive image quality, is that the camera slows me down and forces me to think more about what I'm photographing. Is this the best light? Is this the best composition? Should I photograph this subject another day when the conditions are better? There are no shortcuts, and I'm responsible for every step of the process, Horn explains. Because of being forced to be so much more meticulous, Horn has a ridiculously high keeper rate. It's not uncommon for me to photograph 10 subjects on a nearly two-week trip, resulting in six or seven photo, uh, portfolio photos I'm completely satisfied with without the need to crop the images or significantly alter them in Photoshop. Even though Horn can carry only so much film, he doesn't think this is prohibitive for making great photos. If you were to hand a digital photographer a memory card that can only take 36 photos, they would laugh at you. But if you hand that same photographer a 35mm camera with 36 exposures roll of film in it, they would likely have a tough time finishing that roll. When every photo counts, somehow it changes things, he says. There is a profound sense of satisfaction that comes with, with exposing each sheet of large format film. It gives a sense of accomplishment that carries forward through the rest of the day.
As such, there have been times while returning to my truck, I found an interesting subject, yet I had no desire to photograph it because of the sense of satisfaction from taking a photo earlier that morning. For a typical four-day backpacking trip, Horn goes into the field with food, camping gear, camera equipment, enough film for eight photos. I have more film than I need, he says, with inspiring confidence. He aims to return home with at least one image he's happy with, but sometimes he'll return with six or seven portfolio-quality shots. It's easy to watch Horn schlep his gear in his video journals and imagine it's backbreaking labor. However, he says that looks can be deceiving. Large format cameras look big and heavy, and don't get me wrong, some of them can be, but they don't have to be. My typical 8x10 kit probably weighs less than what many people reading this carry. My 8x10 camera, Shamanex uh, Alpinist X, is made of carbon fiber and wood. The film holders are made of lightweight wood, and the lenses are very small and light, 52mm filter size. I carry everything in a comfortable backpack designed for ultralight backpacking made by Z-Packs. That backpack alone saves significant weight over a purpose-built photography backpack, he says. He doesn't know the precise weight of his kit off the top of his head, but says it's light enough that he sometimes forgets he's carrying it while scrambling up and over rocks. Horn says that a pack with five days' worth of food is tent, sleeping bag, sleeping pad, cooking gear, jacket, 8x10 kit, video kit, and other miscellaneous items weighs just less than 34 pounds. He's preparing for his annual backpacking trip to southern Utah, which will undoubtedly produce incredible photos. Part of his high success rate is preparation and location scouting. Scouting is incredibly important, especially when venturing beyond the icons and discovering my own subjects. Toward the end of my trips, when most of my photography is done, I enjoy wandering without my camera just to see what I can find. By following my curiosity, I often discover interesting subjects or themes for a future visit. As an example, I found an interesting canyon in Death Valley toward the end of my 2022 visit. I made note of a particular glow of reflected light, then photographed that scene one year later when I returned to Death Valley. I often have a shot in mind when returning to a location, which makes it easier to get to work. Horn tells Petapixel, sometimes an image really is a year in the making. As for his favorite place to capture images, a question that stumps many photographers, Horn answers the question with ease. Without a doubt, Zion National Park. I first visited Zion as a kid on a family camping trip when I was six or seven years old. It was summer, and I remember us hiking the Emerald Pools Trail when a thunderstorm drifted over the canyon. Its booming thunder echoing between the canyon walls as large raindrops began to fall. The sights, the smell, the scale, I've been obsessed with Zion ever since. It's not a large park compared to some, but there's so much to explore, and it changes with every visit and every season. Perhaps it comes as no surprise that one of my favorite images is from Zion, Horn says. It's a quite, quite image taken during the fall in a maple grove, the entire scene bathed in a subtle reflected light. Several boulders occupy the foreground among the grass and fallen leaves. Off in the distance, through a tunnel of maples, is a yellow maple against the base of a massive cliff. I love this photo because it captures the feeling of being there. By looking at this photo, I can sense the tangy scent of maples in the breeze and feel the presence of the towering sandstone walls all around me. 
It transports me to a place I love, and that's what I love about it, Horn says of one of his all-time favorite images from his favorite location. Ben Horn proved as gracious with his time as he is talented behind the camera. Although many of Petapixel's readers likely shoot exclusively with digital cameras, offering numerous advantages over film cameras, analog photography remains alluring. Large format photography sunk its claws into Horn, and its hold is unrelenting. He loves the entire process from start to finish and enjoys the challenge, challenges of analog photography. It has proven extremely rewarding for him, and his work has inspired others to follow suit. With results, while his results speak for themselves, and it's by no means required to understand precisely how he created each image to enjoy Horn's photography, there is something to be said for how he makes his images and shares his journey with viewers online. His approach expertly combines yesteryear's photographic equipment and technology with the reach only possible with the internet, a decidedly modern invention compared to an 8x10 film camera. The juxtaposition is fascinating and fantastic in equal measure. Ben Horn's photography is available on his website and Instagram. His video journals are available on YouTube, and people can support his work on Patreon or by purchasing prints. Speaking from experience, his annual portfolio box sets are expertly crafted and an excellent addition to any photography enthusiast collection. And of course, you can find all of Ben's links in this article in today's show notes. And I thought this was a great story. And I love Ben's work. I've followed his work for a while now. And he reminds his work reminds me very much of Ansel Adams' work, because Adams did a lot of the same style large format photography in the South and Southwest uh, Southwest and Western part of the United States during his photography career. And he's visited many of the same places that Ben Horn has visited as well. So I thought it was a good story for today's episode, albeit it was definitely a long one. Photographer braves desert heat to capture rare photo of illuminated ISS. Backyard astronomer, uh, astrophotographer Andrew McCarthy has captured a stunning shot of the International Space Station crossing a crescent moon. What is unusual about McCarthy's latest effort is the fact that it's illuminated rather than silhouetted, allowing the viewers to see some of the space station's features owing to shooting during Earth's daylight. The shot took a lot of preparation involving McCarthy driving out to a remote part of the Sonora Desert in Arizona to set up his elaborate gear and 105-degree Fahrenheit heat. This transit happened at 1650, so the sun was still out, he says. That made the moon much lower contrast and difficult to focus on using my equipment. Thankfully, the ISS still shines brightly enough to capture in conditions like this. McCarthy used two telescopes to capture the ISS, which had 11 people on board at the time. I use two telescopes for multiple reasons, he explains. Right now, I miss about two-thirds of these shots I attempt due to either equipment failure or weather. The second telescope helps eliminate variables. It also allows me to use both color and monochrome cameras, which have different strengths. This image was captured using both, so I was able to combine the final image. The ISS only appeared in the photographer's frame for roughly a quarter of a second, which meant McCarthy had to be extremely precise. Due to the focal lengths used, if my position on Earth was off even slightly, the camera would have missed the transit entirely, he adds. 
The ISS flies at an incredible speed of 17,500 miles per hour, or 28,000 kilometers per hour, so McCarthy had to use an extremely fast shutter speed of 1 thousandth of a second. I was facing 15 mile per hour wind gusts the moment of the transit. Usually that causes the atmosphere to distort the image, so I'm very thankful it came in clear. I feel a huge wave of relief seeing the station so clearly in my raw images, he says. There were 11 people on board at the time, so it's kind of cool to think I was taking a photo of them from the desert in Arizona as they whizzed past at 17,500 miles per hour. The detail I got on the ISS itself in this shot was incredible. Not quite enough to see any of them waving out the window, though. I might need to upgrade my equipment for that, he adds. More on McCarthy's work can be found on his Instagram, Twitter, and website. And I thought this was a great story to cover just because I, I followed Andrew McCarthy's astrophotography for quite a while now, and he, he's managed to capture some absolutely stunning images. And this one is definitely one of his best keepers. Leica's Q-Series always used a leaf shutter, but it went unnoticed till now. It appears as though Leica's Q-Series of cameras have always used a leaf shutter, but that went basically unnoticed until now, or at the very least, totally unpromoted. Leica's duly announced Q3 has several performance leaps over its predecessor, but one advancement that the company has not said much about is the use of a leaf shutter, which allows the camera to sync with strobes at up to one two thousandth of a second. In materials provided to Petapixel and in conversations with the Germany-based company, the use of a leaf shutter in the new Q3 never came up. It was only after perusing the company's official specifications page that the full capabilities of the camera came to light. Compared to the Q2, which has a stated flash sync speed of up to 1 500th of a second, the Q3 offers the ability to sync at up to 1 2000th of a second, which is the fastest shutter can physically fire. Only a leaf shutter is capable of these kinds of numbers. When Petapixel reached out about the huge leap in performance here, Leica confirmed the Q3 uses a leaf shutter. But perhaps more interestingly, the company also said that that nothing in the lens system changed between the QT, Q2 and the Q3, meaning that for some reason, Leica's official specifications are inaccurate in this regard. In fact, DP Review actually tested the Q2 sync speed and confirmed it could sync up to one two thousandth of a second, a specification that is in contrast with Leica's own materials. Petapixel has also confirmed with Leica that the original Q uses a leaf shutter too. While the company wasn't able to provide an explanation as to why the shutter sync numbers don't reflect the capabilities of a leaf shutter for that camera, it expects to provide more clarity on that next week. Petapixel will update this story accordingly. It's pretty strange that the Q2's full capabilities went unpromoted and have existed incorrectly on Leica's own website for three years. But leaf shutters have some major advantages over focal plane shutters and makes the Q3 a highly capable capture device, even if it has a fixed lens, more so than it already is. It is absolutely a feature that you should have had highlighted. Leaf shutters tend to be more compact or quieter, and they don't result in any kind of rolling shutter issue because they open from the center outward, which prevents distortion in moving objects. One other major benefit is the aforementioned sync speed. Studio photographers have preferred medium format cameras not only because of the image quality gains from using a much larger sensor, but also because medium format cameras from Phase 1 and Hasselblad have used leaf shutters, 
which give them more power in studio settings and when mixing natural light with strobes. Basically, leaf shutters give photographers all the benefits of high-speed sync, but without having to rely on multiple flash bursts, which reduce overall flash output. Take, for example, the photo below that was shot by advertising photographer Blair Bunting. In a story published to the Photographer's Tribune, Bunting explains that he was only able to capture this photo because the leaf shutter allowed him to sync at one two thousandth of a second. In 2021, Bunting praised Sony's Alpha One for pushing its shutter sync, uh, flash sync up to 1400 for similar reasons. It's fast, but a far cry from what is possible with the leaf shutter. While leaf shutters are relatively uncommon, their use on compact fixed lens cameras is not unheard of. That said, the mention of a leaf shutter in camera marketing materials is strangely rarely emphasized. It's certainly weird that the actual specifications of the Q2 haven't been right, but not praising the benefits of a leaf shutter or even mentioning that it's in use is sadly the norm. Petapixel had to dig pretty hard to find cases where one was employed, and in those cases, it was usually not a feature that was highly touted. In many cases, it's not even mentioned. Ricoh uses one in the GR3. Panasonic used one in the LX100 Mark II. Fujifilm has one in the X100V, and Sony uses one in the RX107. That said, leaf shutter use, a, uh, use on a full-frame camera is much rarer. The only other example of a leaf shutter paired with a full-frame camera that Petapixel could find is the Sony RX1R Mark II. Leaf shutters tend to be less common than traditional focal plane shutters because they can't fire as fast. One two thousandth of a second is the fastest available on larger sensors. Smaller sensor cameras like the LX100 Mark II can push this a bit faster. Leaf shutters are also more expensive and more complicated to design, especially since the shutter mechanism lives in the lens and not on the camera body. These factors are why leaf shutters are not used very often, but also why, when they're available, it should be noted by manufacturers. It's quite bizarre that the Q-Series went so long without this feature being either promoted or seemingly even noticed. And if you remember, I did talk about the X100V's leaf shutter in one of my recent YouTube videos, and you can check that out on, my, on the Liam Photography YouTube channel. And one of the key advantages of leaf shutter, besides the ridiculously high shutter sync speed, is the fact that with a leaf shutter, you can maintain a shallow depth of field with a, with a wider aperture, and you can still stop down the background light to get a more balanced exposure and use fill light on your subject to balance things out even further. Those are the major advantages of a leaf shutter, and they are extremely rare in the majority of cameras. And it is odd that being it is such a great capability, more camera companies don't tout that in their marketing materials when they sell these types of bodies. Matavor Media and Chaos Imaging Resource suddenly back online. After being taken offline earlier this month, Imaging Resource is now suddenly back online as the chaos wrought by the organization's acquisition by the Bebop Corporation continues. Imaging Resource, the oldest and largest repository of camera reviews and information outside of DP Review, was unceremoniously taken offline on May 8th as the company's new owner started to pull the plug on many of the assets it had acquired during the acquired along with the rest of Madavar Media. 
For a time, Imaging Resources URL redirected to Outdoor Photographer, which recently had its own share of problems as many contributors and photographers have been unpaid for months. Earlier this month, the Bebop Corporation told Petapixel it had chosen to shut down Imaging Resource and other enthusiast-focused publications because they were too expensive to operate. Specifically, CEO Gregory Charles Royal said that these properties lost a lot of money. On May 18th, Mr. Royal posted a large banner ad at the top of Outdoor Photographer that it was offering it Imaging Resource, Digital Photo, and the Image Creators Network for sale as a bundle for half a million dollars. Petapixel has learned that the site's return is intentional, whatever that might mean. Mr. Royal was reached to for comment, but he did not immediately respond. It is possible that Mr. Royal later realized it would be difficult to sell a publication that was not currently online. One of the reasons it has been speculated that Amazon has kept DP Review online well after it said it would shut down the publication and decided to flip the server switch back on in order to make the sale of the brand more compelling. This is, of course, speculation. Whatever the case, Imaging Resource has already lost its most valuable asset during its time offline, Google Search Engine Optimization. Since the site was taken down, Google recognized the change and de-emphasized the site in search results. It will be difficult for the site to gain that SEO back if it does indeed find a new owner. This is now the second time the Imaging Resource has faced the brink and returned. The company originally announced it was going out of business in 2019 before it was saved by Matavor Media. It then was taken offline by Bebop after the acquisition and is now back. At the very least, those who have missed ha having access to Imaging Resources' vast library of reviews can at least find them again for now. Given how tumultuous the situation with Matador Media's properties have been since Bebop acquired them, nothing is for certain. And I thought it was good to cover this story because Imaging Resource is a massive catalog of information on cameras and photography, much like DP Review, and it was tragic that it was suddenly taken offline. It is good that it's back, God knows for how long, but as of this recording, I can confirm that the site is currently online. And I'm going to take a short break right here, and then I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. If you want to leave comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can call or text the show at area code 470-294-8191, and you can email the show at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. You can find the show notes and links at liamphotographypodcast.com, and you can tweet the show at liamphotoatl using the hashtag. Hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now, back to the show. And we're back. Redesigning the perfect camera. Concept ideas for a Fujifilm X-Pro-F. What is perfect? I don't think there is a camera in existence that is perfect for everyone. But there are certainly cameras that, over the years, have demonstrated outstanding industrial and user interface design. For some photographers, their perfect camera might be one of the Leica M-Series with a simple classic manual rangefinder experience. For others, the DSLR form factor might be perfect with its large grip, presence, and counterbalance to large lenses. 
Others might not need the complexity of interchangeable lenses and would say a Ricoh GR3, Fujifilm X100F, Leica Q, or another fixed lens camera matches their ideal. For others, an iPhone is perfect. The classification of a perfect camera is very personal. When I read the design story of the X-Pro2 written by Aggie Granas, I really wanted it to be my primary photography tool, and I've used this camera for over seven years now. It balances a tactile, classic experience that I've always loved when taking photos with a camera while still offering modern functionality that helps me take beautiful images. It's not quite perfect, but to me, it's the most perfect, almost perfect digital camera I've ever owned. Disclaimer, this is not how I typically approach product design. I just wanted to quickly get some maybe naive ideas out. It's assumed that the reader knows a bit about photography and modern digital cameras. To dream, this was just a fun project for me to get some thoughts down. Thoughts that I have been ruminating on for a while. Of course, there's a lot that would need to be pushed further to make any of this truly realistic. Menu configurations, usability issues, UI consistency, part mold design, etc. But I'm thankful for you taking the time to read through this. I've chosen the X-Pro3 to use as a base camera to illustrate the ideas here. My hope is that the reader could imagine how these ideas could be applied to other interchangeable lens digital cameras. Nonetheless, these are a set of features I think solve tangible problems yet to be solved by Fujifilm or any other modern camera maker, maybe helping them to become a little bit more perfect. To allow for effective zone focusing, provide an external panel that is dedicated to displaying lens focus and hyperfocal distance. New technology can sometimes make certain things harder than they used to be and often used technique in street or documentary photography is to zone focus. Zone focusing is when a photographer manually sets the focus to a certain pre-calculated range, and it allows them to capture moments without having to focus at a critical time. But in order to do this effectively, it is important to know what distance the lens is set to. Classic manual lenses provide distance markings that display critical focus information at all times, but most mirrorless lenses, including Fujifilms, are completely unmarked. Instead, focal distance information needs to be read in the viewfinder or LCD screen. This solution would make focus information more accessible and would not require the photographer to look through the viewfinder to see it. Dedicated focus touchpad. To allow for the direct selection of focus area while looking through the EVF or rear LCD, provide a dedicated touch control pad that is highly responsive and keeps fingers off the screen if there is one. Some street photographers do make consistent use of autofocus. However, composition and focus go hand in hand, and oftentimes these need to be done in parallel. Fuji has used a focus selection joystick, but I personally found this extremely slow and finicky to use, particularly in scenarios where the desired composition requires precise focus at a point where the current focus point is not. You can see just how finicky and slow this is to use. And some camera manufacturers allow for focus selection using the rear LCD as a touchpad while looking through the viewfinder. This direct control can be incredibly efficient and very effective to select a focus point quickly while composing the shot. But due to the position of the screen, this can often lead to mistaken input from the nose or it can be awkward to reach the LCD with the thumb when looking through the viewfinder. Not to mention fingerprint smudges on the screen. 
Instead, using a responsive touchpad set at the perfect ergonomic position would provide the best of all worlds and would work with button, uh, back button focus techniques as well. Providing a dedicated touchpad allows the photographer to quickly move the focus point while looking through the viewfinder in an intuitive way. This touchpad could also be clickable, allowing fine grain selection, menu navigation, and custom function mapping. Modular rear screen and I.O. To allow for the varied use cases and needs of users, provide an interchangeable modular screen system and a set of screen options that serve all possible photographer preferences. Without fail, the rear screen layout for any newly released camera seems to be its most controversial feature. This may be due to the sheer amount of options that require some form of compromise and the fact that there is no consensus by photographers and videographers on what is preferable for their use case. Everyone has an opinion on whether it should be a flippy screen, a fixed screen, tilt flippy screen, dual axis flippy screen, or none of the above. I think camera manufacturers could focus their efforts and unify their camera systems by modularizing the most contentious parts. This would require some kind of connector system, which I fully admit I am glossing over a bit. I understand that this comes with incredible technical challenges, but considering the robustness of modern serial connectors and the already interchangeable nature of lenses, I have hopes that a camera company like Fujifilm could figure this out. The LCD screen is one thing to modularize, but you could improve the, uh, imagine the same for other extended functionality as part of this modularity, like I.O. ports or battery attachments. Function lock switch. To allow for persistence in exposure and focus settings, provide a physical lock switch that can lock settings without the need for the photographer to continually press it. Most modern digital cameras have an autofocus lock and or an auto exposure lock button. These buttons can be very useful, but usually they require the photographer to hold them down. Or if it does lock, there is no indication that exposure is locked except through the viewfinder or LCD. I could imagine that this simple switch could be configured to lock focus, exposure, and much more toggling modes, presets, custom configurations, etc. Layouts and aesthetics. This one is pretty X-Pro specific. I wanted to give some thought to labeling and play with textures and shapes. Building on the already well-designed X-Pro3, I made some slight refinements to the layout and treatment of many of the fundamental components, buttons, dials, labels, grips, textures, etc. I spent some time making slight adjustments to the top panel layout, mostly adjusting alignment and reducing visual noise. I'll leave it up to the inspired reader to investigate the small changes made from the X-Pro3 top panel. The back panel is probably the most complicated component of any digital camera. I think it's important to balance access to powerful functions while also maintaining a feeling of approachability. Buttons should always be labeled. However, particularly with digital cameras, buttons and dials can be generally customized to perform one of many functions. I attempted to keep labels on customizable controls non-specific, yet still easy referred to, even though what they might do has changed. Thanks for reading my ideas on the perfect camera for me. How about you? What would your perfect camera be? And I just thought this was an interesting article, and he does have some great ideas how well they would be to implement or how easy they would be to implement 
is something that I'm not certain about, but I'm sure one of the big camera companies could figure this out. Even Fujifilm could easily figure this out. They have many years of experience with crafting phenomenal cameras. It's one of the reasons why I switched to Fujifilm a little over a year ago. Sony v ZV-1 versus ZV-1 Mark II, an upgrade of the compromises and diminishing returns. Sony's ZV-1 vlog-centric camera arrived in 2020 and was met with some divided opinions about the direction Sony was taking with this new video-first camera. At its launch, I was the vice president at the public relations company working with Sony's camera division, and I recall how some of the briefings were met with more enthusiasm than others. The ZV-1 was a new concept in an old body, albeit with modifications specifically for the video creator. The ZV-1 chassis is, at its core, the same as Sony's RX100 line, a well-regarded series of compact cameras that debuted in 2012. While the new ZV-1 Mark II addresses the focal length complaints from the original camera, it does so at the expense of a critical feature, image stabilization. The compact, still photography-centric camera market has long since declined when the ZV-1 came out in 2020. Still, the number of YouTube and social media creators was skyrocketing, and the ZV-1 was a compelling first step in giving these creators something between a GoPro and a mirrorless camera with which to create content. Traditional photographic outlets had a cooler reaction to the ZV-1 than influencers and YouTubers. Still, generally speaking, Sony was praised for pivoting to cater to a market that other camera companies were mainly ignoring. A few standout features made the ZV-1 compelling for the video creator, most notably the product showcase setting, which switches focus to objects being held between the creator and the camera, and then back to the creator when the object is put down. A variable neutral density filter, an excellent noise-canceling microphone, and optical image stabilization. As with all cameras, there were some disappointing design decisions. The biggest complaint is that the 24-70 lens inherited from the RX100 Mark VI is not wide enough for most handheld vlog-style footage, and even with a selfie stick, the resulting framing has too much face and not enough background. Activating digital image stabilization further cropped the footage, making the com composition even less pleasing. The three-capsule noise-canceling mic was also criticized for its poor reach, requiring a lot of creators to use a lab mic for their audio, and the lack of a headphone jack makes monitoring audio impossible. It looks like Sony is increasingly hamstrung by the same body style introduced 13 years ago, because the issues that haven't seen updates would require a new chassis. For example, the ZV-1 doesn't get 10-bit video or the new AI-driven subject tracking, as there's just no room in the body to put in the new image processors. My favorite solves the problem without actually solving the problem update in the ZV-1 Mark II illustrates how cramped the chassis is. Users, myself included, complain that since the ZV-1's battery and memory compartment is located on the bottom of the hand grip when the camera is mounted to a tripod, the tripod quick-release plate or tripod head covers the door, preventing it from opening. When addressing this complaint, Sony clearly couldn't relocate the battery door and memory card, so instead it moved the tripod mount to the opposite edge of the camera from the door. While it's a functional solution, it's also a ridiculous one. When using a selfie stick or tripod, this design decision puts the camera off-axis and makes composing an image very odd. 
Since the biggest complaint about the ZV-1 was the lack of a super-wide lens, the most significant change for the ZV-1 Mark II is the new 18-50mm lens. That provides a much better field of view for vlog-style footage and is naturally better for landscape and travel videos as well. In the studio, the wide-angle offers more coverage for unboxing videos and multi-person one-camera setups. It's incredibly complicated to make a super-wide lens with a super-wide aperture and a compact body, and constructing this lens required some compromises and other features. Most importantly, the IBIS system found on the ZV-1 is gone on the ZV-1 Mark II. The ZV-1 Mark II uses entirely digital stabilization instead of optical stabilization with the option to add digital stabilization. The crop stabilized image will stop many potential customers in their tracks because giving up any wide angle focal length to stabilize an image seems to defeat the purpose of having a wide angle lens. This is a concern that was noted in Petapixel's review of the camera. In practice, this trade-off isn't as problematic as it seems. Shooting at the full 18mm focal length is still possible when stabilization isn't needed. When a 22mm crop after digital stabilization is enabled is not as wide as an 18mm lens, a 22mm wide-angle digitally stabilized image is still wider than a 24mm mechanically stabilized one. A small amount, but it's still wider. Of course, having the ability to shoot at 18mm on a tripod or gimbal or when moving slowly is better than not having that ability. Still, the ZV-1's lens was stabilized at the 24mm focal length and the ZV-1 Mark II's lens is only 18mm if you're not using stabilization, so it's not an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. I understand the need to make sacrifices to get a wider lens in this small body, and I would have preferred to lose the variable ND filter than the stabilization, as most people watching a YouTube video don't care if the exposure changes on a subject in the outdoors. Still, they care if the footage is composed well and if it's too jittery to watch. Like the tripod mount being a being to a ridiculous location to solve the battery door access issue, putting a super wide angle lens into a camera that must be cropped to use effectively is a very there I fixed it approach to problem solving. Still, I'd choose the new ZV-1 Mark II over the ZV-1 thanks to the ability to shoot wide at least some of the time. But an ideal design would have provided an 18mm lens that was always usable at 18mm. Sadly, the ZV-1 Mark II provides no updates to the recording formats over the ZV-1. It's still 4K30 8-bit camera, which is, well, it's not great. Don't get me wrong, most creators are shooting 8-bit footage and 4K30 is good enough for them. When I read complaints that a camera fails because it doesn't offer 10-bit video or because it can't shoot 120 frames per second, I wonder how many of those commenters would shoot 4K 120 10-bit 422. But with the Sony ZV-1 Mark II, the company targets a creator that would benefit from the 10-bit video directly. A typical vlog-style video can go overexposed scene to an underexposed scene in seconds and typically passes through various light temperatures. Balancing the color from shot to shot under studio lighting is hard enough, but throw in the changing conditions of a vlog-style shoot and 10-bit footage is suddenly really valuable. 
Sony's up against its size limitations. It takes a faster processor than the one found in the ZV-1 and ZV-1 Mark II to capture 10-bit footage or to capture 8K, but there's just no room for the newer processors in this body. And the small size means that if the camera could capture in 10-bit, it would likely overheat pretty much instantly. While the ZV series is designed for the video creator, the ZV... The only ZV series camera with 10-bit recording is the ZV-E1, as the ZV-1, the ZV-1 Mark II, the ZV-F, and the ZV-E10 are 8-bit only. Yet Sony clearly knows the importance of color grading, as the ZV-1 Mark II has creative looks that crop the footage to a cinematic aspect ratio and color grade the footage. Simulated color grading, yes. 10-bit actual color grading, no. Nothing says that a $900 camera needs 10-bit capabilities, but you won't get higher bit color fidelity if you want to upgrade from the ZV-1 to its successor. The ZV-1 Mark II is much easier to use than the ZV-1 thanks to the touch-driven interface that now supports nearly every function and operation. It's possible to swipe between menus, pinch and zoom images, tap for focus, and tap for auto-exposure. The newer interface is so much improved over the ZV-1 that for me, my ZV-1 be relegated to the studio and other B-camera uses where the settings can be locked off for shooting. The ZV-1 Mark II is the superior choice for any real-world A-camera use since it's possible to use the camera without constantly turning it around to push the buttons on the back. The ZV-1 Mark II has all the powerful software-based features of the ZV-1 plus a few new tricks. The ZV-1 Mark II has one-touch bokeh, product showcase, skin softening, and the same variable neutral density filter as the original. It also has touch exposure, a closer minimum focus distance than the ZV-1, and minor tweaks like the ability to set in and out points for a video to transfer to your phone or computer. The most significant hardware improvement, aside from the microphone that doesn't only point forward, is the inclusion of a USB-C port instead of micro-USB. The ZV-1 is the last camera device I own that uses micro-USB, and I can't wait to be done with them. One improvement in the ZV-1 Mark II drives me insane, adding a photo-video S&Q button on the top plate. Unlike the ZV-E1, which has a slider switch to transfer between modes, the ZV-1 Mark II has a toggle button. As a result, if you're in photo mode and want to switch to video mode, press the button once. But if you're in video mode and want to go to photo mode, you have to press the button twice to toggle through S and Q before going back to photo. The multi-step nature might not bother everyone, but it drives me crazy. An interchangeable lens camera, a mark level update, usually features a new processor, higher resolution, and or new video capabilities. With the ZV-1 Mark II, the Mark gets you a wider lens and a USB-C port plus touchscreen enhancements and a better interface. With the ZV-1 priced at least $100 lower than the ZV-1 Mark II and both cameras having identical imaging sensors and file formats, the ZV-1 becomes more attractive to the creator that wants to save money and end up with the same image quality as the more expensive update. If you own a ZV-1 and are happy with it, the ZV-1 Mark II is likely not worth the upgrade price, but that's partially because if you need a lens wider than 24, you wouldn't have bought the ZV-1. If you've been looking at the ZV-1 as a compact vlog-style camera, but have been put off by the 24mm focal length, the ZV-1 Mark II is a better choice. 
Keep in mind that using digital image stabilization will bring that lens a lot closer to 21 millimeters than 18. Sony points out rightly that the Type 1 sensor in the ZV-1 series is much bigger than in a smartphone and capable of capturing footage in low light and challenging situations. The company also talks about all the creative possibilities of a camera with a variable aperture lens and full camera control. But Sony's playing this both ways, as the Xperia lineup of cameras feature 4K at 120p HDR and massive beautiful displays. When the company launches a new phone, it discusses how much it functions like an Alpha Series camera. When Sony talked about the ZV-1 Mark II, it talked about the easy-to-use one-touch features that don't require formal camera training. So Sony phones are good because they're more like Sony cameras, but the ZV-1 is good because it's more like a phone? After 13 years with this body design, it would be nice to see Sony develop a new design that's cutting-edge and optimized for video creators, not just repurposed for them. Canon recently released the V10, a video camera designed for selfie-style vlogging videos. While the camera has a lot of shortcomings, it's the first genuinely vlog-only physical design we've seen come from a major camera company. The fact that this design came from Canon and not Sony is surprising. As the ZV-1 series body enters the 13th year of relative sameness, it continues to be a serviceable, albeit not thrilling, camera. The ZV-1 Mark II largely fixes the ZV-1's primary complaint, and the new touch-driven interface significantly improves the ZV-1. The massive oversight with the front-direction-only microphone has been corrected, which makes the ZV-1 Mark II usable from behind the camera. What the ZV-1 Mark II does not do is fix things like the missing headphone jack, add a larger HDMI part, improve the battery life, or relocate the port, or provide improved video. The ZV-1 Mark II is therefore a mixed bag of an upgrade. Luckily, the ZV-1 is still in the lineup for those who want the least expensive 8-bit video camera, but don't need the wider lens, touchscreen, or USB-C connectivity. For those shopping for a new compact video creator camera, the ZV-1 Mark II is better than the ZV-1. Still, the ZV-1 Mark II is not nearly as compelling as most of Sony's major version camera updates on their full-frame camera line. And I wanted to cover this story just because I watched the video from Chris and Jordan about the ZV-1 Mark II and listened to all of the things Chris had to say about it. And it is disappointing. I mean, granted, they did give you a wider lens, but they had to remove the optical image stabilization. So now you have to settle for digital stabilization, which forces the camera to crop in. So then you lose that 18 millimeter field of view. Talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Photographer weaves her models into the landscape for stunning images. A photographer inspired by nature weaves women into the landscape using natural elements like grass, water, and plants. Janine Simons tells Petapixel she had a reoccurring impulse to weave women into the grass and finally followed through on her vision and it ended up changing her life. Grass Cocoon set me on a trajectory of exploring my relationship with the natural world, expressing my reverence for it, and affirming my connection to it, she says. I've developed an ephemeral approach that involved integrating my models into the landscape, adorning them with sculptured elements, and capturing the moment through photography. With my work, I attempt to convey my belief that we belong in nature and that we are part of the very fabric of nature, she continues. 
This work is my personal antidote to what I perceive to be the tragic alienation between much of humanity and the earth upon which we are dependent. Simons is inspired by the material she encounters during walks with her dogs. Plants that many may not even notice spark the photographer's imagination. Once I have identified a site and particular material, I inevitably begin the collection process, foraging for and harvesting my materials, she says. Sometimes I create the necessary sculptural components for a project in my studio and transport them to my site on the day of the shoot. Other times, I forage on site and create and document the pieces all in one day, building the piece directly on my model's body, she says. One of my models, uh, once my models are situated and wearing whatever accoutrements I have created for them, the actual shoot goes very quickly. I'm shooting for perhaps half an hour to an hour, depending on the elements and the level of comfort or discomfort that my model might be experiencing. There are, of course, an abundance of variables to manage when preparing for a shoot outside, sometimes requiring me to study the tides, the location of the sun, the weather, etc., all of which add to the fun and feeling of engagement that I love so well, she adds. Simon's models are regular people who live in her community. They don't wear makeup and she doesn't alter them in Photoshop afterwards, staying true to the organic themes of her images. As she brings along her to her photo shoots, all she brings along to her photo shoots is her camera, her iPhone, a couple of tripods, and a reflector. So far, I've used entirely natural lighting. My skills are still somewhat rudimentary. After a lifetime of identifying with tools like hammers, drills, chisels, and shovels, I still feel a bit clumsy with the camera, she adds. Simons was previously a sculptor with virtually no photography skill whatsoever and began capturing photos using an iPhone 5. When I began making this body of work, I had no idea where it was leading me, she explains. I later purchased a Fuji X-T3 and took an online photography class at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. I'm still trying to catch up with myself from a photographic perspective. Simmons lives on the edge of the Olympic Peninsula in Washington, surrounded by a temperate rainforest with her husband and daughter. You can see more of Simmons' work by visiting her Instagram page and her website. And I highly encourage you to stop by her Instagram and website, as well as this article in today's show notes, because she has some absolutely stunning images that she's done where she incorporates her models with nature. And I think it's a really clever and creative way to do photography. And coming from a sculptural background, I can see where she got the idea from. As kind of something that was probably percolating in her head, like she said, for quite some time. And last for this week, photographer captures killer whales attacking his boat. A killer whale named Gladys is attacking boats around Spain and Portugal with a photographer being left in awe after he was on board one of them. Stephen Bidwell and his wife Janet Morris were sailing in the Strait of Gibraltar when they heard the cry, Orcas! It's an experience I will never forget, Bidwell tells the Telegraph. I kept reminding myself we had a 22-ton boat made of steel, but seeing three of them coming at once quickly and at a pace with their fins out of the water was daunting. The pod of orcas attacked Bidwell's boat for about an hour and alarmingly is one of the several similar attacks in the area, which is being pinned on one vengeful orca named Gladys. Scientists believe the whale's aggression toward boats was sparked by a critical moment of agony in which Gladys collided with the vessel or was caught in illegal fishing nets. 
That traumatized orca is the one that started this behavior of physical contact with the boat, says Alfredo Lopez Fernandez, a biologist at the University of Avonroe in Portugal and representative of the Atlantic Orca Working Group. Matriarchal Gladys is now showing other orcas how to hunt boats with a French vessel sinking off the port of Vina de Costa, uh, Castello after the cestations cranked its hull, or cracked its hull and took on water. Lopez adds that Gladys's behavior was not revenging, but a behavior learned as a reaction and precaution while the other whales were intimidate, or imitating. Bidwell and his wife were targeted by the orcas on May 2nd, but just yesterday, another incident happened near Gibraltar where orcas damaged a yacht, causing a crew of four to contact Spanish authorities for help. The Maritime Rescue Service deployed a rapid response vessel and a helicopter carrying a bilge pump to assist the 66-foot vessel that was sailing under a British flag. According to the research group GTOA, which tracks populations of the Iberian orca subspecies, the incident follows at least 20 interactions this month along in the Strait of Gibraltar, alone in the Strait of Gibraltar, between small vessels and the highly social apex predators. In 2022, there were 207 reported interactions, GTOA's data shows. And I thought this was intriguing because it is really rare that you hear of uh, killer whales attacking boats. So it's definitely got to come down to some sort of traumatic experience that this Gladys had in the past. And now she's teaching this aggressive behavior to other killer whales that she travels with. And that's all the news and rumor story or news stories for this week. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that is going to wrap up episode 345 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcasts. If you're not currently a subscriber, why not? It's absolutely free. It doesn't cost you anything but a second to hit the subscribe button. And you can listen to the massive catalog of back episodes I have at your leisure. I have recently started putting the episodes on my YouTube channel as well, since YouTube now has a dedicated podcast tab for content creators. I didn't put the entire catalog on there. I only have like the last 20 episodes on there or something like that. But you can also listen to them now on YouTube if you choose. Now, please remember, if you haven't already gotten over to Kickstarter and placed your order to get a discounted price on the new Platypod handle camera riser and 
blogging handle, you need to get over there now because there's only three days left to back this campaign. And then the first batch of Platypod handles will start shipping in June. And I am told by Skip Cohen that they will be on target to deliver the first batch right on time. They're already starting to receive them from the factory and get them prepped to be shipped out ASAP. So uh, you can find the link to the Kickstarter campaign for the PlaidPod handle in the show notes for this episode. Highly encourage you to drop by and order one or two. I got one as a, a early previewer from PlaidPod. Absolutely love it. And I was one of the first people to order one as soon as the Kickstarter campaign went live because I knew I wanted to have at least two of them for the work that I do. Also, please remember to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, watch the videos, like them, comment on them, share them out on social media. Make sure you get in on the 10,000 subscriber giveaway that I have going on right now. You can uh, find all the details on that at the at my YouTube channel. Just go to any one of my most recent videos and you can find full details and the official rules in the description below the video. But basically, all you have to do is subscribe to the channel, turn on all notifications, and then leave a comment in one of my videos saying, I need a tripod with a camera emoji and you are entered to win. You cannot enter multiple times. Any additional entries will be ignored and you'll be disqualified from winning. All right, that wraps up this episode. I will see you all again on Thursday.